The second reading is Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 1 and reading to verse 12. You'll find that on page 990. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Just how dangerous is teaching, which is close to Jesus' words, but actually subtly different. How dangerous is that? Uh, this warning, this passage is a warning. Look with me at verse 6. Watch out and beware. Look at halfway through verse 11. Beware. And halfway through verse 12. Beware. Three times. Beware. So think flashing sirens, scary hazard signs, time to sit up, take action. There is danger ahead. I recently went to the local swimming pool in Mile End. And as I walked in, I didn't see any warning signs over the swimming pool. Why? Well, because it's so big and so obvious, even my three-year-old knows not to jump in it. But there was a little puddle in the corridor which had several signs around it saying, warning, hazardous, slipping inevitable, don't crack your head open here. So although the swimming pool could be very dangerous, uh, people can drown in them, why else do they need lifeguards attending them all the time? The fact is, the subtle, trickier to spot puddles on the floor can be more dangerous. They can creep up on you. But the danger we're talking about here isn't death by drowning 
or even death by slipping and banging your head. But death through lies. Death through lies. Because ideas, they can change the world. That's very obvious, isn't it? Ideas change the world. Politics, religion, celebrity. Ideas shape cultures and spread through everything. So just how dangerous are ideas which are similar to the truth, but actually are different? That's what this passage is doing for us, warning us against the subtle versions which talk about God, but ultimately have changed the word of God in such a way that you have changed the truth into a lie. For it's easy to spot the atheist, isn't it? That's the swimming pool. Obvious, they deny God, the Richard Dawkins of this world. So easy to spot. Whereas the so-called Christian, the people who talk about God, talk about the Messiah, the new creation even, quote tons of the Bible to you, they are much harder to spot, aren't they? They are subtle in their deception, though they'd never admit that. They are, no doubt, sincere in their intentions, but ultimately their path is destruction and death. Do we realize that? The danger of subtle lies, the easy-to-miss ones, the ones that might crawl in under the radar. Subtly different teaching to Jesus is lethal. We need the sternest of warnings for it. Beware, beware, beware. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, Let's step back and let's see um, how these two scenes of our passage, they link together. First of all, they ignore the blatant signs. Verses one to four, they ignore the blatant signs. Read with me from verse one. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came That's who we're talking about here. And already the original reader, they'd be falling over themselves at this point because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were hardly friends. The Pharisees, uh, they were the religious elite of the day, the formal yet hypocritical religion. We only need to turn back a single page to see that. They kept the rules and then some. They added to the revelation of God. They put great stress on form and multiplied them, not only beyond what the law of Moses said, but even to the subversion of moral duty. So as a group, they were self-seeking and ultimately ignored God. They exchanged truth for a lie. But realizing all of that was actually only due to Jesus' exposure of them, because they certainly played the part, and to most of us, The undiscerning, they could fool anybody with their ritualistic piety. But that was only ever surface level deep. We could call them God talkers who added to the truth. God talkers who added to the truth. Whereas the Sadducees, on the other hand, were the opposite extreme. We know much less about them from the scriptures. They aren't so often in the firing line. They were the liberals of the day, the free thinkers. If the Pharisees added to the truth, well, then the Sadducees, they took away from the truth. 
And the Sadducees were renowned for fighting with the Pharisees. All that is until this day, because Jesus was in town. So despite being politically and theologically opposed, their common opponent, Jesus, transformed these enemies into allies. And so verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came. And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. The question, seemingly innocent, show us a sign from heaven. But the motive to test Jesus was very sinister. I mean, testing Jesus, that's nothing new. It happened then lots, and it happens today, doesn't it? Have you ever heard someone saying, well, if only God did this, that, or the other, well, then I'd believe. Now, if that person, if they've never read the eyewitness account of Jesus' life, well, then you could say to them, fair enough. We'd better open up this book with them and show them the signs from heaven in the Lord Jesus, hadn't we? See, the request for signs isn't in one sense a bad thing to ask for. There is so much evidence for the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the crux of the issue. These leaders, they're asking for a sign whilst ignoring the signs that are so obviously in front of them. Jesus himself and everything they've witnessed him do to date. See, the irony is this. When they asked Jesus for just one sign, considering all the signs that he's done to date, showing them that he is, in fact, from heaven, then there are no more signs Jesus could do to persuade them. Their question just shows that they are actually unwilling to see the blatantly obvious. And that's precisely where Jesus takes their request. Verse 2. Jesus isn't trying to avoid the hard question by becoming British all of a sudden and talking about the weather. We all know that traditional phrase, don't we? Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Well, actually, as I've read up on it in these last few weeks, um, turns out this has less to do with predicting the weather than just seeing what's blatantly in front of you. And the text, it matches that point precisely. Because the, the words, it will B, they aren't there in either verses 2 or verse 3. So it actually reads like this. When it is evening, you say, fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. It's not rocket science. There's no crazy predictions of weather patterns forming. You see the storm, you call it a storm. You see the sun, you call it sunny. You see the Messiah, you call him the Messiah. You see signs from heaven, call them such. So we land at verse 4. Jesus' verdict and consequence. The verdict, evil and adulterous. Harsh? Hardly. When you realize what they are teaching. These are people who are forcing people away from the truth. They are anti-Jesus people. And notice how straight Jesus is with them as a consequence. No more signs. 
Then it gets somewhat enigmatic. Except the sign of Jonah. Now I hear you all ask, what is the sign of Jonah? We won't spend lots of time here. But simply put, this is the most brilliant of comments from the Lord Jesus. I mean, we all know the story of Jonah. Tom read some of it for us so beautifully, didn't he? Uh, Jonah, um, he's a very naughty prophet, we could say. Uh, He refuses to tell Gentile Nineveh to repent. So he's swallowed up by a big fish, vomited out by a big fish, and then he himself repents and then does tell Nineveh to repent after all. Now, even though Jonah was sent to Nineveh, who was the book of Jonah written for? Answer? Israel. It's in their scriptures, isn't it? Essentially, those who he is speaking to right here, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what was the book intended to achieve in Israel? In a word? Repentance. Jonah's story is an exposure of Israel's lack of willingness to repent, especially in the face of God assembling his people from Gentile lands like Nineveh. So why does Jesus bring up Jonah here? Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are failing to repent, to see Jesus for who he blatantly is, the I am God, come to save his people, and gather his people from every tribe. And let's not forget what has come just before this incident. End of chapter 15, what was Jesus doing? Feeding the Gentile people. As Jesus offers the exact same exodus rescue to anybody in or out of Israel. See, just mentioning Jonah, one word, makes the point so brilliantly. And let's not forget, where does Jonah's generation of Israel end up? In exile. Left out. God left them and departed. Just like Jesus does at the end of verse 4. So he left them and departed. See, the end of verse 4 isn't just leaving the room. Jesus shuts up shop to these leaders who reject him. This is a climactic moment. Jesus is saying, if you reject me, I will leave you. Jesus won't continually offer life to these leaders. He'll shut up shop and take his offer of assembling God's people around himself elsewhere. This is a hugely significant moment. It's been brewing, actually, throughout this section. Um, See, Jesus withdraws each time after he is rejected. But this time, it's different. This time, he leaves. So as the major philosophies and teachings of the first century reject the person of Jesus, Jesus rejects them. Jesus has offered life, if only they'll repent and see him for who he blatantly is. But if they continually reject Jesus and all the blatant signs up to this point, the feedings, the healings, the signs upon signs upon signs, 
well, then Jesus will leave them. So we move on to our second point. Having left the Pharisees and Sadducees behind, Jesus now warns the disciples and us to do the same thing. We must beware their lies. We must beware their lies. Now there's some bewildering forgetfulness here, verse 5. For the third time in a matter of three chapters, the disciples have forgotten to bring bread I mean, once is an honest mistake, twice is a bit negligent, three times they need a new bread monitor. But you see, what they need is not actually a deal with Benjamin the baker. Jesus picks up on it immediately with a strong warning. Verse 6, Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, Jesus is playing on the bread theme. Leaven, um, it's basically yeast to our ears. But what does the leaven symbolize? Well, Matthew's comment in verse 12 makes it very easy for us and very explicit. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. See, Jesus is using leaven to speak of ideas, the teaching of these people. Jesus is speaking of insidious ideas that creep into people's thinking because that's what ideas do. They spread, just like yeast in a dough spreads. Now, when you think about this, it is a truly brilliant illustration from Jesus. Uh, Firstly, leaven. It's so small and in seemingly insignificant, you'd barely notice it missing whilst making a dough unless you were a seasoned baker and knew of its power. For it will spread throughout the loaf and infect the whole thing. But also secondly, not only does it start small, but it works its way in secretly. There's no fuss. There is no obvious reaction. You won't notice the difference all that is until the end, at the presentation of the loaf. But gradually, the whole character of the loaf, or the culture, is changed. It's obvious, isn't it? If you want to change a society or a culture, then just start spreading ideas. And of course, the best ideas, they're the subtly different ones, aren't they? But these ideas... They're like a slow-working poison, dragging you incrementally, a millimeter at a time, away from the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, just think for a moment what the Pharisees were happy to talk about. God, the Messiah, the prophets, the new creation, knowing and quoting the Old Testament regularly. And the truth, you see, it certainly overlaps with lots of their teaching. That's why it's hard to spot. But when it comes to Jesus, there they just step aside ever so slightly. Although they might sound like they are openly still testing Jesus out. We could charitably think, are they deliberately against Jesus here? It seems a little innocuous. Jesus sees straight through their facade. They're rejecting. 
and unrepentant. So disciple, be warned. Be warned. Take the greatest of cares, please. It's essential that you don't slip up on these subtle idea changes because you get Jesus wrong, it will end fatally. See, the reason why Jesus replays the double-feeding miracles back in the disciples' mind, verses 8 to 10, it's not to remind them that they really did need a new bread monitor, but to point once again to who he is. And verse 11 could sound exasperated. I don't think it is. He says, how is it that you failed to understand that I did not speak about bread? He's just saying, it's time to put two and two together here. Or look at the blatant signs. Don't slip up where others fall. Now, as we come into land, it would be oh so easy to point the fingers and to say, look how pharisaical or how Sadducean they are out there. But do you see how that would be missing the point entirely? This is not really about pointing at them, but pointing in at ourselves. Notice where our second point has taken us. We, disciples of Jesus, we must beware their lies, their leaven, their thinking. Of course, there are some who miss the blatant signs. But don't let that leaven, that thinking, that teaching infect you. We must get really really clear who Jesus is. Jesus is God himself in the flesh, the Emmanuel, the great I am Exodus God, come to save and to gather his church together. See, I wonder if our moments of, verse 8, being of oh so little faith, if they center actually around a small view of who Jesus really is, Jesus is Lord, God, and Savior. So why is it that we don't turn to him in every single minute of every single situation in our lives? Why? Our little faith in him. Our little view of him. We don't really know who Jesus is. I mean, could we put it like this? This particular leaven is... The idea of stopping believing that Jesus is God. That slow diminishing of our confidence in Jesus. We mustn't let that creep in at all. Let's think about it from a totally different angle for a moment. How seriously do we take truth and ideas Because obviously, truth is both taught and caught. It's both said and done. I mean, how much do we consume ideas within our culture which are just plainly wrong? How easy is it for us to have blind spots here without realizing it? I remember once sitting with a wonderful dad and, and what he did, he, he paused the cartoon of the TV show his kids were watching. And he just asked them one simple question. He went, what was that teaching? And was it true? 
That was a dad that was caring about the truth and what his kids were thinking. I wonder what songs, Christian or otherwise, do we listen to unthinkingly? What cultures are we absorbing uncritically? What internet scrolling is seeping in the back door without us noticing? We must be doing all we can to immerse ourselves with truth, to be cultivating environments where truth is valued, prized, and honoured. Is that what it's like here? Because wonderfully, the truth is actually designed to counteract the influence of the leaven. Think about it. The truth tells us of our sin, and and it offers to us a saviour who brought us with his blood. Now, if we are really mindful of our guilt, why would we yield to leaven that teaches us otherwise? Let us come together to God through Christ and purge out as far as possible every atom of the leaven. To that end, whilst we are obviously to be in the world, knowing all sorts of people, we are not of the world. So we must be choosing our friends who shape our worldviews with real care. One will, for the most part, absorb the ideas and the aromas of one's friends. Are our friends worldly and ungodly? It's nearly impossible to escape the, in, the leaven infection. I wonder, do we think that we here are uninfectable? Do we arrogantly think, but we're St. Helens. We care about truth, no risk here. Do we honestly think we are stronger than the disciples who had Jesus for their teacher? Or even, I wonder, do we honestly think that we are entirely leaven-free here today? I know my own thinking. It needs constant refinement. Please keep telling me and living out truth about Jesus around me. I know I need it. And I presume it's the same for all of us here. So we should make it our pledge that our lives be governed by the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. There will always be Pharisee types who add to it, even in amidst our midst. And there will always be Sadducee types who subtract from it. But adding to the truth and taking away from the truth is akin to blatantly ignoring the truth altogether. So disciple, beware, beware, beware. I'm going to pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this stark warning. Thank you that you have told us to be oh so careful. And we ask that you'd help us see the leaven-like lies that can creep in the back door. Help us watch out and beware of them. 
for they will lead us away from the Lord Jesus to death. Thank you so much that the truth in Jesus is knowable by your spirit in your word. So help us to say and to live out the truth. In your holy and precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.